Hello and welcome to Scanet Today's Last Week in AI, where we usually discuss AI news. But this is a special episode in which me and my co-host will go ahead and discuss the topic of AI risk and in particular AI X risk. So instead of talking about what's going on with AI, we'll sort of lay out the general topic and discuss our take on it. Uh, so hopefully people will enjoy that. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. Uh, for some background, I finished my PhD at Stanford, focused on AI recently, and I'm now working at a generative AI startup. And yeah, I'm your other host, Jeremy uh, Jeremy Harris. So I've worked in AI safety for the last three years or so. Um, the company I co-founded does a lot of AI safety policy stuff and some technical research that we'll maybe get into today, I guess. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll mention is like the perspective, just because it's relevant to the conversation today, the perspective that uh, I have on this was shaped quite a bit by, uh, yeah, like some of our collaborations with you know, folks on the alignment teams that like uh, DeepMind and OpenAI and stuff like that. Um, there are other perspectives too, and we'll be getting into that as well. Uh, but just to kind of put my biases on the table, that's kind of like the, the universe, the ecosystem that I'm coming from. Um, and yeah, really looking forward to this. Yeah, this will be fun. I think to give a little bit more background for people who maybe haven't heard these bits, basically what's been happening is we've been getting into mini discussions <laughs> yeah. on and off while discussing news and whatnot. So we just figured it'd be fun to do an entire episode dedicated to this where we can get more into it. And we have slightly different takes. I'm also on the AI research community, but I present more of a sort of skeptical-ish side with respect to X risk. So it'll be kind of fun to compare our takes, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really looking forward to this discussion because it's it's one of these things, like it's so heated on the internet. Like obviously, like if you think AI existential risk is a, a serious, real and pressing thing, like, you know, you want to do serious things about it, big things about it. And then if you don't, you know, a lot of people feel like it's uh, either distracting from more pressing issues or in some cases like that it's, I don't know, just like this really bad thing to focus on. And so you get very heated camps. And what I kind of like about this is we've been able to discuss it, I think like very sort of like in a calm and casual way. And, and I'm looking forward to doing that today. So hopefully. Yeah. I agree. I think oftentimes, you know, a lot of, I don't want to overgeneralize, but some people that are concerned with X risk are very much like entrenched in that point of view where, you know, people who don't concern with it or don't get it. I'm not going to name names, but some, some big names are a little bit sort of like fully convinced, let's say, and, and kind of think it's silly to not take it seriously. And then on the other hand, some people who don't, worry about X risk, even just scoff at it and think it's ridiculous and is, is like some kind of ploy to get money or, you know, whatever. So I think there are some nuances we'll get into and it'll be fun to discuss. So I, I by the way, I just want to say like, I exactly agree with what you just said there on, on but you know, not to do the, uh, through fine people on many sides thing, but like, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're actually like, really well-meaning, intelligent people who disagree about this issue. And, you know, hope, hopefully we're two of them. <laughs> but uh, in any case, I, yeah, I, I just totally agree. I think it's like there are no ridiculous positions in this space. Uh, so little is known. And anyway, best thing to do is just discuss. Yeah. So 
before we get to discussion, though, we want to lay some groundwork. And for anyone who isn't super aware of a topic, we'll just be doing some uh, background. If you already know the topic, we'll include the timestamps so you can kind of go beyond the definition and the basics to more of our takes and discussion. And uh, Jeremy, as you're more of the AI safety expert, uh, how about you give us the definition of AI risk, X risk, and just a general overview? Yeah, I mean, like in a way, I wish there was one definition. And, you know, we've talked about this before. A lot of people come at it from different perspectives. Um, generally speaking, we're talking here about a category of risk that is faced collectively by the human species. So human extinction level risk, right? The wipeout of the human civilization. And um, there are variants on this where people will say like, well, doesn't it also count if like humans lose all their agency over the future? Like, shouldn't we worry about that too? So, you know, you don't necessarily have to kill everyone, but maybe you put us into like the matrix or something, plug us into the machine or whatever. I think it's fair to say there's like, there's fuzziness at the, at the boundaries. Where I come from, at least, I tend to think of it as just human extinction. So, like, that's the category that I focus most of my uh, energy and attention on. Um, but other people will differ. And essentially, when it comes to AI specifically, we're looking at a case where, yeah, human extinction is caused by some sort of AI-related event. Again, this is kind of me putting my cards on the table. I tend to worry about a case where a an AI that is, like, dangerously clever, let's say, just not to put a, a label on it, too early, um, comes up with uh, with a strategy and, and has an incentive to prevent humans from shutting it down, to collect more resources, to mold the universe broadly into a very weird shape that has no value to humans and does not include humans. So that's kind of very roughly the the kind of world that I'm trying to prevent from happening and that I consider to be at least you know decently likely. Yeah, and that's I think. A pretty common definition of X risk is literally extinction risk. Uh, it, I think the the X is for existential risk, so existence, right? Uh, I found it interesting looking into this. Actually, I didn't realize the term originated around twenty years ago, uh, originally from Nick Bostrom. So there are other existential risks. It's not yeah. just AI, right? So we have like you know dangerous viruses or nuclear warfare. And you can think of it as uh, extinction, but as you said, there's other takes too. So the definition I found in this uh, article by there's the Future of Humanity Institute, uh, there are a few ways to define it. One of them is uh, the premature extinction of Earth-originating intelligent life or the permanent drastic destruction of its potential for desirable future development. So if we like are in a Wally future or in the yeah. matrix, under that definition, it also counts. For me, when I say X risk, I tend to think of it as like, I mean, not necessarily extinction, but even 5% of humanity being killed, you know, like... Yeah, I think at that point we're kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a global catastrophe on unimaginable scale that... Um, just totally results in a serious curtailment of humanity, right? So that's that's where we come from. 
Yeah, and, and actually, so to your point there, um, this is another kind of sub-debate in the insanely niche, like I can't emphasize this enough, insanely niche subdomain of existential risk. But there are people who will get really upset if you use existential risk to refer to like only 5% of humans dying. And they'll say, no, 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 that's a catastrophic risk. So nuclear war, for example, often is considered a catastrophic risk, not an existential risk, because surely some humans, like it's very hard to kill every single human and the argument is, as long as there are some humans around, they can repopulate, and like the the future of the universe contains humans, and they can still flourish. Whereas if you kill all humans, there's kind of this like qualitative difference where now, like yes, the story is truly over, history is finished as far as the human civilization is concerned, and we should worry about that on a different kind of order of magnitude. And so these are just different camps in the space. I think they're not. The, the it's like not the most productive debate to have when you're like trying to focus things down on something like AI X risk, but um, just a flag that there are probably people getting a little upset if we, you know, if we call it all X risk, <laughs> but that's going to happen anyway. I think either way you can kind of group from a, yes, existential risk is like an extra level of difficulty, let's say, but you know, there's a similar level of concern you should have, yeah. um, you know, if you're, if you're like, obviously, ex uh, extinction is like the worst thing, and that's like the worst possible thing. But I think ten percent of humanity dying out is is close to the worst thing, and you should be similarly concerned, right? Well, so, so there are actually people who say like, no, there's a big difference, and there are arguments that sound like, well, you know, even if there's like a hundred people who survive and they can repopulate, then like if you think about all the human life that will exist through. I mean, the course I agree. Yeah. I, I totally get that. Of like mathematically as a value, blah blah blah. Right. Yeah, it's easy to make that case, but practically speaking, it's it's in the same plane of we should be really worried. Yeah, according to yeah, I, I don't think it like super affects policy, and and that's something yeah. that kind of gets missed. I think a lot like people like I just I just fell into this rabbit hole right here with like no prompting. Look at how easy that was. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> it's like you know so many of these things, like you say, you know, you get above a certain percent, and it's like, all right, guys, are we really gonna like are we gonna change our policy based on these nuances? I think you're totally yeah. right. So that's the you know definition slash uh, range of definitions. And we'll be throwing out a bunch of terms, I think, as we get into this. So uh, I think we'll go ahead and introduce them. Some of them you probably know, some of them you may not know. So we'll start with defining these terms, starting with maybe one of the key ones, alignment, which is just a fancy way of saying the AI does what we want it to do. So if an AI is aligned, it pursues the goals we wanted to pursue and achieves the goals in the way we want, pretty much. And misalignment is when AI, you can say goes rogue, or you can say like does things in a way that is counter to what we wanted. Yeah. And, and like usually the term alignment, so alignment has a lot of different, depending on who's saying it, it can mean different things. So, you know, like open AI and a lot of these like, you know, anthropic and stuff, when they say alignment, Often they're well. Sometimes they're worried about making sure that a language model like ChatGPT doesn't tell you how to build a bomb. If it does, then you know that's behavior that OpenAI doesn't want it to display, and so that's a misaligned model. Um, other times, like here, when we talk about misalignment, you're talking about that, but taken to the extreme, where you have, say, like an, an AGI or a super intelligent AI that has a goal that is slightly different. 
at, le at least slightly different from what we want it to have. And that slight difference gets basically magnified because the AI is so crazy competent that it like optimizes to blazes for its objective in a super competent way. And that kind of basically turns the world into a hellscape relative to the goal you wanted it to have. So anyway, that's two, two sub definitions there just for, for kicks. Indeed, yeah. Like in the extreme, misalignment is a thing we worry about for sure. But also, like we currently care about alignment as well. Yes. So that's one of the key terms. I think another term worth knowing about is intelligence explosion, which is this notion that once um, AI gets to a point of self improvement, uh, you know, you can have this uh, process that gets kicked off where the AI can make itself smarter so it can very rapidly become super intelligent, like an intelligence beyond anything that humans are capable of. Sometimes it's basically like a god level intelligence. Uh, and there's also this term called FOOM. I actually don't remember what it stands for, but it's like the fast takeoff scenario where once we achieve self improvement, very, very rapidly we'll get to a super intelligent AI. I believe this is a really good question. I believe foom just stands for foom, like the sound foom. Like it just, you know, <laughs> it's not. It, we uh, see we live in a world of like llama and alpaca and and like all these these models that have crazy acronyms. This is the one goddamn time there's no actual acronym. Mm. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, you're right. And in, in the so just to kind of like um, motivate a little bit the intelligence explosion concept, uh, the idea is kind of like you know humans are able to make. Uh, AIs. And if you think that eventually we'll be able to make an AGI or a super intelligent AI, then that kind of implies that we can make things smarter than ourselves. So then if we do that and we make a thing that's smarter than ourselves, one of the things that that super intelligent thing will be able to do is make itself smarter because, well, we made it in the first place. So surely it's going to be able to keep that process going. So it makes itself smarter, which allows it to make itself even smarter and smarter and smarter. And you get this like insane closed feedback loop. That's kind of like very broadly, roughly what is going on there. And the foom comes from like this mind's eye image you can have of this thing just going like vertical and, and like exponentially getting smarter. And so foom, it just, yeah, singular. Mm. Yeah, and with respect to that, a couple more things. So first, we'll generally be talking about AI agents. So there's broadly two categories. There's AI models, which are just sort of functions. So you give it some text, it outputs some text, and that's the extent of the AI doing anything. It's input, output. An agent is basically an ongoing process where the AI can continuously uh, and autonomously perform actions by itself without necessarily you having to press a button for it to do something. It can continuously um, pursue some objective by itself. So generally, when we talk about concerns, that is with respect to AI agents that have some autonomy. And once we get to AI agents, Often, I think the concern boils down to specification gaming or reward hacking, which are kind of synonymous. They basically say, if you give an AI an objective, uh, which can be a reward in the reinforcement learning uh, case, it will then do whatever it can to maximally achieve that objective. And these terms, specification gaming, reward hacking, basically say that 
often there might be a way to achieve that objective not how you want it so you don't actually get what you want like in a video game for instance we've seen when you train an ai if there's a way to cheat it will find a way to cheat instead of actually playing the game and you can yeah. imagine this is kind of a concern is if there's some way that involves killing all of humanity to you know achieve whatever objective you have then the ai might just go for that yeah, and, and like so, uh, just to add a little color to the the whole agent definition, um, one way, and, and this has all definitions have fuzzy boundaries. We're going to run into that a lot today. But um, one way to think about the different difference between like a model and an agent is that the agent has to deal with the consequences of its actions that compound over time. So you know, a model like think of a, a face tagging AI model, right? You give it an image and then it tells you where the faces are in the image. That's it. End of story, right? There's no, okay, then this happens. Now what do you do? Whereas um, reinforcement learning agents, which are the other extreme that play video games, have to do like, you know, make decisions and then their decisions impact the environment and then that changes and then they have to make another decision and so on. And one thing just like that's really interesting about this moment in AI is we're starting to blur the boundary between those things. Language models like ChatGPT that are able to have a long interaction with you where you know they answer your question and then that prompts you to ask a new question and then you kind of they have to live with the consequences of their prior moves uh, essentially are somewhere in between. And that's exactly why all of a sudden we're seeing systems like AutoGPT. It's exactly why we're starting to see the kind of agentization of models. And we're learning that there's actually quite a, a broad continuum between agents and models. And so um, just kind of like, I guess, add that little bit of color. It's sometimes ambiguous. What's an agent and what's a model? What is agenty, in other words? Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see that it turns out once you get a good enough and general purpose model, you can just make it into an agent. You don't have to like train right. it to be an agent. And that's what we've been seeing. Broadly speaking, for the most part, the AI we have out in the world today are AI models, right? So ChatGPT, if you're just chatting with it, that's still a model because you're typing with text, you're hitting enter, it produces an output, and then it kind of waits, right? So there's very few deployed agents, if any, that I know of. There might be some, like, uh, let's say, for optimizing a data center, there's an ongoing process with it affecting the environment. So that could be something like that. By the way, we are agents <laughs> as human beings. Pretty much animals are agents, right, in the world. So you interact with the world. So that's the uh, situation. Yeah, I, I would say like with ChatGPT, it's a little, to me, it seems a little more ambiguous. Like uh, because every time it, it gives you a response, it affects you as the user, and then you give it another prompt in response. Essentially, what's kind of happening is like all that context that you accumulate in your conversation with ChatGPT is almost like the accumulated environmental transformations that the ChatGPT agent is then going to factor into making its next decision. So it's almost like it behaves like an agent within its context window. Um, but then beyond that, it behaves like a model. So now I'm super confused about what to even call it, but yeah, it, you could that. easily tweak it where like, yeah. you know, if you make it into an actual conversational agent and it could be like impatient and, and follow up and it's then an agent. So it's, it's, yeah, you can, uh, you can have different views. Now, with respect to reward hacking and specification gaming, another term worth knowing is power seeking. This is a newer one. It, I think, came into popularity a few years ago. <clears throat> and the idea of power seeking essentially is 
as part of reward hacking or generally wanting to optimize for some objective, an AI agent will be motivated or will find it useful to power seek, which is to say have more freedom to do whatever it wants. So it just so happens from a theoretical point of view, if you set up like a little very, very small thing, then it can be optimal behavior for the agent to then, instead of just doing one thing, to keep its options open, more or less, and, and, and seek freedom, you can think of it as. So this is one of the hypotheses, is if we have a super intelligent AI, it may, uh, even if not necessarily, even if you try to restrict it, it may be motivated to unrestrict itself to be able to do more, and then that's trouble. Yeah, and, and this is like, um... This is this is a fairly recent thing, as you pointed out. It's sort of become one of the dominant lines of argument for existential risk from AI. Uh, we heard like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio, for example, really kind of lean into it pretty hard. And I think there's some like intuitive ways to to reason about why this would be the case. So, at the, at the core of the power seeking argument is this idea that like no matter what your goal is, if you're an agent. Um, you're never more likely to achieve it if you get turned off. Like there is, there's never, or at least for the vast majority of goals, unless your goal is just to turn yourself off, in which case you are just not an interesting agent. Um, so for the vast majority of goals you could have, you have this implicit incentive baked in to prevent yourself from being turned off, to stay on. And likewise, no matter what your goal is, you're never less likely to achieve it if you have access to like fewer resources. So you have this implicit incentive to collect resources and again, you know, to become more intelligent because you're never more likely to achieve your goal if you're dumber. And so taken together, these become, and this is where we're bleeding into this next definition, which is instrumental convergence. But basically, th this is the idea that like, no matter what your goal is in life or, or as an optimizing agent, uh, there are certain sub-goals that you're going to consistently converge towards. You're consistently not going to want to be turned off. You're consistently going to want more control over your environment, more resources, more intelligence, and so on. And so these are sometimes known as instrumental goals. They're not your final goal. They're not the thing you care about, but they're a stepping stone on the way to that. You know, no matter what I want out of life, uh, I'm always going to be better off with $10 million more in my bank account. And so getting $10 million in my bank account becomes an instrumental goal to achieving whatever I want. And so there's a sense that you expect, you might expect these systems to converge on these instrumental goals in a repeatable way. No matter what their objective is, they're going to tend to want to seek power, accumulate resources, and so on. And so this is the phenomenon known as instrumental convergence. It's actually almost just another word for power seeking. It's the idea that these systems, highly capable systems, will always have an implicit incentive to collect power. And the only thing that prevents them from doing that is their limited capacity, their limited capability. The moment they're smart enough to recognize that they have this incentive and act on it, we ought to expect that they will. At least that's the argument behind instrumental convergence in power seeking. Yep. So... The term there is referring to these instrumental goals, goals which are made in pursuit of some particular end, but are not the end goals themselves. So as you said, kind of as sub-goals, as right. intermediate steps, you may decide to do this. Um, and just to refer to it, it's worth knowing about this paperclip maximizer problem, which is one of the kind of early things. Don't take this too literally. This is kind of a, just a silly example, let's say. But 
we this is one of the canonical things of let's say you have an AI and it is tasked with producing as many paperclips as it can by some company. Well, the idea is well that if your objective is just maximize paperclip production very quickly, the AI will decide, well, let me just take over all the production capability on Earth and then produce nothing but paperclips. Then it you know it, it spirals out of from there. So basically the AI only cares about paperclips and it makes the entire world a paperclip factory, you know, achieving its goal, but obviously uh, not helping out humanity. Yeah, in this example, um, people actually debate to this day what it actually was designed to prove. And there's also debate about who really came up with it. Nick Bostrom is like, you know, kind of famously used it in his book, Superintelligence, which I think was in 2016 or something. And then, but Eliezer Yudkowsky, whose name will likely come up again today, um, like I think is argued to have had something to say about this. But I think there, there's a, a debate over whether it's meant to show reward hacking or power seeking or another thing called inner alignment failure that we'll get to. Um, but yeah, the, so the scenario is like one way to tell the story too is to say, you know, you imagine this future, I don't know, five, 10 years from now, we have this AGI, super intelligence system, and you're working at a paperclip factory and you go, ooh, good, an AGI. Okay, we're going to use this to make as many paperclips as we can. We'll get rich. And part of the idea here is to have you go, you know, what could possibly go wrong? This sounds like such an innocent objective. Like, just make paperclips does not sound like it implies the end of the universe. And yet, it turns out that if you want to optimize for paperclip production, you do crazy sounding things. Like you realize, hey, you know, there's, I need iron to make my paperclips. There's iron in the ground. There's iron in people's blood. Oops. Like now you have this incentive to rearrange the molecules in people's bodies to, to do this stuff. And the argument is that most goals look like that. Most goals that we could give to an AI system, if taken to their extreme, if executed against by an arbitrarily intelligent and competent system, end up reshaping the universe in some insane human incompatible form. And so uh, anyway, that's like part of the paperclip argument. We, I guess we, we could do a whole pod, podcast on paperclips, but <laughs> probably worth not doing. And one possible counterpoint to this, right, is kind of a intuitive thing of if AI is so smart, shouldn't it understand that it shouldn't do that, mm -hmm. right? That that's what not what we care about. You know, a smart AI should be aligned, arguably. And sort of related to that is this fancier term that is kind of known in the community of orthogonality thesis which is basically saying that intelligence and the goals you perceive are orthogonal. So if there's a super intelligent AI, regardless of the level of intelligence, that is independent of the goals that it pursues. So you can have a super intelligent thing that pursues, I don't know, maximum uh, paperclip, something that seems stupid. Uh, arguably. And uh, yeah, but the basic argument is just because you're smart doesn't mean you'll know not to maximize paperclips. And, and I feel like it's, you know, humanity offers a lot of examples of this too. Like, you know, Adolf Hitler um, was, was arguably not that dumb a guy. He was just like a complete psychopath and had a, a goal that was misaligned. Um, you know, Stalin too, and, and so on. And so uh, not, not to like lean too heavily on those sorts of things, because that's obviously, you could argue for, for years about whether that's a good example. But yeah, just the idea that the goal is independent from the intelligence deployed towards the pursuit of that goal. 
So like you could set, you could get a very intelligent system to pursue a, uh, an evil goal or a very intelligent system to pursue a smart goal. And like you said, they're orthogonal, they're independent in other words. Yeah, and uh, I think this is quite relevant to this, uh, I think newer term uh, that also gets thrown around, which is Shogoth. Uh, yes. So Shogoth is this fun term. So it comes from H.P. Lovecraft. It's this crazy fictional monster that is like beyond human comprehension. And the argument by a lot of people is we should think of AI intelligence as sort of alien intelligence that is really not akin to human intelligence necessarily. It's kind of an alien thing that we don't really fully understand. And so that's one argument for orthogonality is, yes, it's super intelligent, but it's super intelligent in this mysterious alien way that is not human-like, and we, we can't necessarily intuitively understand. I think that's a really good, by the way, you've done a really good job of like ordering these terms. And I think this is a, a really good term to add to the mix. Um, the, the Shogoth thing, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I've only ever read it. Shogoth, Shogoth is like, especially, so, so just to make this concrete, you know, humans evolved in this ancestral environment where, you know, we're trying to propagate our genes. We're trying to, you know, feed ourselves and, and, and have as many kids as possible not consciously, but anyway, that's the, the evolutionary pressure. The, the evolutionary algorithm put this pressure on us. Um, when, you, when you then look at, at uh, modern large language models, say, you know, these are systems that are glorified autocomplete engines. So like the selective pressure on them looks completely different. It looks like, hey, get really, really good at predicting the next word in a series of words or variants of that anyway. And so uh, what people kind of say is like, look, this leads to a completely different kind of thinking machine. Sure, it outwardly displays a lot of the same statistical regularities in human writing, but that's just because, you know, not coincidence, but that's just because it was trained on human text. It, it was shaped, though, according to a completely different set of pressures than those that shaped human evolution, including, you know, there's no competitive pressures. There's no collaborative pressures. Humans faced pressures to collaborate with each other, formed clans, like needed to learn things like honesty and deception, needed to learn things like, um, you know, anyway, being able to create alliances and things like that, religious systems. None of that is baked into the training process, the pressures exhibited on you know, a, a chat GPT, GPT-4 type system. Um, so that's kind of part of the idea is like, this is just like a weird, it's really intelligent, but like, do we have any clue how or why or what it's thinking? Like, not really is the argument here. Yeah, and uh, if you haven't seen it, you might want to look up the memes <laughs> because there are these images that are basically like, you know, ChatGPT appears to be talking to us in an intelligent way that kind of seems to indicate that it is reasonable and understands us. But that's really just pulling, putting like a smiley face mask on top of this monster where in, in, internally it's still the Shoggoth, uh, even though it may not appear to be. And uh, to finish up, uh, we only have one more thing which is worth mentioning. This is maybe um, implicit, but worth also being explicit about. In general, when we talk about X risk or long term AI safety, we're talking about artificial general intelligence or general AI, which is to say an AI that is capable of many tasks, broadly speaking. That's uh, what we're seeing now with ChatGPT. With many systems are becoming more general. Previously, you know, before twenty 
2020, for the most part, we've had narrow AI, which is AI that's really, really good at one thing. So, you know, AlphaGo, GoPlaying, or AlphaFold, protein folding, when an AI is optimized to do just one task, and that's all it can do, that's narrow AI. And general AI is uh, an AI that can do many things, can even potentially learn to do more things uh, throughout time. And typically, people are concerned with AGI. There's also a term called ASI, which is artificial superintelligence. Uh, and yeah, the general assumption talking about this is this is a general AI and it is a super AI. So it's at least as smart as the smartest humans, if not like way smarter than anything we've ever seen. And this is like, at least in, to my mind, this is like rabbit hole number one to avoid because so many discussions about AI extras get bogged down in like defining what like what is agi like how would you know that you had an agi by the way people some people have been calling gpt4 an agi some people call gpt3 an agi so like everyone's got a different idea of what this means so this is what, at least for for my own internal framing the way i usually think of this is like um we can imagine a bunch of concrete scenarios where things go really really bad for humanity each of those scenarios requires a different level of intelligence or a different kind of set of capabilities on behalf of the model that's posing the risk. And so I would much rather just focus on like, you know, what, like what is the set of the very rough set of capabilities at which this thing starts to become existentially dangerous, then sort of focus on kind of going backwards and saying like, okay, let's say we have a system that's this intelligent, what can it do? Um, and then debating like whether human-level AI, artificial general intelligence, artificial superintelligence, transformative AI, these are all terms that get thrown around that nobody really agrees on how to define. Um, internally, when I think about it, it's just like there exists a level of capability uh, beyond which these systems become existentially dangerous. And we don't know what that level is going to be. That's part of the uncertainty. Um, it's possible that we have actually like I guess it's possible we've even reached it already, though I don't particularly think we have, and that the system just hasn't been prompted in the right way to make it manifest this dangerous behavior. But um, bottom line is, like, just there, there exists some level of capability, broadly understood. And if you believe you can reach it through scaling, or you believe you can reach it through other things, um, then you you start to worry about okay, you know, what like what happens when we reach that threshold? If that makes sense, right. Yeah, implicitly, often people say AGI, it's not just that it's general, it's also that it's super intelligent, yeah. or at least, you know, is is way beyond what we have today. This is the first soapbox I'd like to get on. I hate the term <laughs> AGI, and I hate all these discussions of what is AGI. You know, uh, the generality of intelligence is a spectrum. There are many points along the spectrum ChatGPT is general AI, so is uh, DeepMind's, you know, game playing agents. When you are just an AI that is able to do multiple things beyond playing Go or protein folding, you are on a point of generality that is more than one thing and, you know, not everything. And you, you can like, it's it, you don't need to have like a binary distinction that I really, really think it's like yeah. an obvious point that for some reason still people don't seem to agree on. Yeah, I, I feel like it's instead of saying like, does AGI pose an existential risk? Maybe a more useful question is like, is there a threshold of intelligence uh, at which AI becomes existentially dangerous? 
Like if, if you're, if you're cool with that, then I feel like we've, you know, we've got what we need and we don't have to like, yeah, get bogged down in definitions for sure. Yep. Well, so that's it for definitions, but we still have some more, uh, you know, groundwork to lay before we get into that discussion. I don't, I don't want to say debate, but there might be a bit of debating. So the next thing to talk about is given these definitions and concepts, how do we get to X risk? You know, where do we get concerns about X risk? So obviously, we've already covered some of that with respect to power seeking and reward hacking. Basically, if you have a misaligned AI that is a super AI and can do whatever it wants, it will then power seek to be able to do whatever it wants. And then it turns out that maybe human extinction is one of the things it wants. Now, to get a little bit more concretely into some of these scenarios, uh, how that might happen, you can broadly categorize them in multiple ways. So generally, I think the assumption is that this is an unintended consequence, right? There's no malicious agent. The AI is not explicitly tasked with wiping out humanity, and this is an unintended consequence. There is also, you can think of it as a malicious uh, agent, a human that just tells an AI to go and do the worst you can and obviously yeah, that's like GPT. A, that's like a simpler case right if you have a human yeah. that's like wipe out humanity then <laughs> obviously that's an x risk that's like pretty easy to imagine um so broadly it's it's these two um ideas and uh yeah you can get it to various other things like state agent versus um independent you can have an ai that's like uh and fully autonomous AI, so it's just like running in the internet somewhere and doing its thing and no one is watching over it, right? It's it's fully out there versus you could have uh, an AI that's being run by an organization and then as part of that, it's not like fully autonomous, it's not fully operating independently, but it still winds up being really bad. So there's, there's like multiple ways to think about it that conceptualize where the risk may originate from and you shouldn't kind of assume that it's one over Albert necessarily. Yeah. And, and like, I think, um, to kind of focus it, So I, I think all these things are, are legit areas to, to worry about, you know, we, we saw chaos GPT, like explicitly be like a version of auto GPT that somebody tasked with destroying the world. Like that's cute and funny, but I think what it does serve as is an existence proof of the kinds of people who might take a system and just be like, yeah, yeah, let me see. I don't know why I sound like Jay Leno here, but you know, yeah, give it a shot, you know, see, see, see what we get. Um, and, uh, and basically like set their, their agent loose on the world. But I think like the, maybe for our discussion, uh, let me know if you disagree, but it might be useful to focus on the kind of the innocent case, just because that might be the most controversial one, where it's like, you know, do you think that a system that is just built with the goal of being helpful and harmless um, by a well-meaning organization and a well-meaning and competent team uh, could pose an existential risk? Does that? I think, actually, I would ima- I do think that it's worth thinking about the malicious case as well. So, because mm-hmm. I do think it in my mind, it might be even more uh, worrisome. So there is a malicious use case. Um, It's not necessarily just wipe out the world. You can imagine, you know, generate a mega biovirus for my warfare and it leads to this. So there can be explicit goals to harm humanity that an AI is tasked with. 
And I do think that one of the scenarios that you can imagine is in a few decades, we'll have super AI and then anyone can run it on their laptop, let's yeah. say, right? And then I do think that's a much broader risk category where you could have people that just, just for the hell of it, you know, explicitly set this goal and that's a whole other thing you need to worry about. So to me, it, it's worth kind of keeping all of this in mind, although generally the concern is with this unintended outcome. Well, so yeah, sorry. The only reason I was proposing that was I think we'll agree very quickly on the malicious use piece. Like, I, I very much agree with you. I think, you know, as AI gets more powerful, essentially the destructive footprint of malicious actors that use it just grows and grows and grows. And then at a certain point, it just becomes unacceptably high. And uh, yeah, so I guess I was trying to focus in on like, where is the crux of what, where we might disagree in a more, in the most interesting way? But I, I agree, maybe it's worth yeah focusing explicitly on the malicious use thing, just because you know some people won't buy it too, so it might be use, useful. I uh, mean, yeah, and I think to me, it's worth keeping in mind that you have different scenarios, and those different scenarios have different assumptions that yeah. need to be kind of true to worry about them. So, for instance, with the you know just for the kicks of it, I'm gonna make AI wipe out the world. There's the assumption that. AI will be kind of readily available for anyone to do what they want with without much supervision. It's not going to be like it is right now where you have Anthropic and OpenAI kind of leading the pack uh, and we are now starting to have these open source models that you can do whatever you want with. So that's that's kind of a, like a, a future scenario to think about. Uh, I do think just to get a little more explicit, uh, one thing that I think is useful is laying out, well, okay, so we have this general idea of um, misalignment and, and maximizing for a goal that harms humanity. Now, explicitly, wiping out humanity is pretty hard, right? There's like 7 billion of us. So even just to imagine, you know, how can this be achieved? There's not that many ways, according to me. And, and not even just extinction, just like 5%, 1%. So to me, here are just examples I can think of, of the general categories of how AI X-Risk may come about. The obvious one is nuclear Armageddon, and AI decides to launch a bunch of nukes like it did in the Terminator, and that is 1% of humanity right there. That's an easy one. Another easy one is the robot army scenario. Again, Terminator the Matrix. Uh, we have mass-produced military weapons, and AI can then uh, take control and, and pursue its own goals. Those are the kind of easy sci-fi ones. Then we get into things like uh, incredibly powerful biovirus, bio so incredibly deadly virus that then can kill a large swath of humanity that for some reason the AI develops and deploys. There's also the potential of a cyber virus, so kind of cripple all of human infrastructure by messing with our technology. Uh, there is another one, which I think is pretty often in the mind of X-Risk people, of certain X-Risk people, which is mega lethal inventions beyond viruses. So for example, not a technology that can you know, go crazy or like some extra nuclear weapon that just wipes out everything. So this is like sort of science fiction-ish super, super powerful technology that a super intelligent AI may develop. So yeah, broadly, I, I think these are the main sorts of ways you can imagine actually AI leading to 
people dying out. Yeah, so I think this will this will be one of the the interesting areas I think of discussion because I I think while I agree with with broadly a lot of these categories these are potential vectors, um, I think the the main take home for me is like the moment we admit that we're dealing with a system that is super intelligent, um, we have effectively already uh, relinquished our agency over the future course of events. In the same way, like, and we can get into concrete scenarios, and you know, this is something that I think is worth discussing. But like, you know, imagine you're like, you're you're like a, a prison warden, and um, you're you know you're uh, you're like a three year old prison warden, and you're trying to keep somebody like a very smart forty year old person behind bars, and that forty year old person like knows that you're a three-year-old, they know you like candy, and they convince you that in exchange for letting them out, they'll give you candy or like something like that. Something like that is ultimately, like at some point, at least if we assume that we're going to continue making progress in AI in the way that we have, uh, at some point, my argument would be we get to that point where we stand in relation to these systems as the three-year-old does to the 40-year-old or as the, let's say, as, as the two-year-old stands to the very, very smart 40-year-old. And there, there comes a point where that distinction is so extreme that regardless of what the 40-year-old wants out of the situation, they will get it. And just because they can model the two-year-old's brain and what will cause the two-year-old to tick better than the two-year-old even can themselves. Um, so that's like kind of an abstract view, I guess, big picture-wise of, of why I, I tend to put less stock in specific scenarios. I think it's important to look at them. Uh, but more the general case of like, there are strategies we can't possibly even conceive of that are actually the most likely course. Like I, I think the most likely path is that we get hit upside the head by something that hasn't even been put on paper uh, just because it's a strategy that is so so much easier to pull off than any human had ever thought of or, or you know, relies on some kind of... Uh, revelation uh, insight that the AI has that no humans ever developed. Right. I think this is, uh, you laid out a pretty common case of like, we can't even possibly imagine, so we shouldn't really be concerned with trying to think through this. Oh, just, sorry, just to be, just to be clear, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with it. I think the concrete cases are important to consider, as I mentioned. It's just that like, I want to plant the flag there that as we look at individual concrete cases, there is a risk that we miss out on this broader yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So often kind of one of the arguments is we can't imagine all the scenarios, let's say. And uh, this is a bit of a pet peeve of mine where, you know, one thought experiment I like to imagine is, you know, let's say you do have a super intelligent AI and they just is able to run on the internet and decides to wipe out humanity. Like at that point, are there really that many ways to do it? Like basically things will boil down to some mega lethal invention or some virus, right? There's only so many ways to kill life. And I think the reason it's worth to think through these scenarios is then you can think through well, what are the steps that are necessary concretely for this to happen. Um, and I think often also there is the implicit assumption of like a god level intelligence basically this whole thing of like you know adult versus baby and be of a baby uh and that's another one of my pet peeves is there's a lot of assumptions to unpack that are kind yeah, of yeah, implicit yeah. often right so one of the assumptions is you have a god level ai well what if you just have like a human level or like really smart human level ai that's a whole other condition 
so anyway, I, I do think in I my totally mind, agree. I tend to think a little bit more in this explicit way. No, I, I think that's I think that's really good. I think the, the you need the mix. Like you need to look at concrete scenarios to get a, a feel for how things might unfold. Uh, but then I think it is also important to zoom out and be like, well, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to leap to like I don't know that we'll leap all of a sudden to a super intelligent 40 year old versus 20 versus two year old scenario. Um, but it seems uh, it seems certainly like the the plausible course of the development trajectory of the technology right now, that if we just keep going, and you know, I don't know when, it could be 50 years from now, but at some point we build systems that are way, way, way smarter than us, um, that can, in a sense, that can play the game of life the same way that uh, DeepMind's AI plays the game of Go, that like essentially abstract, we, we saw this with StarCraft too, as, as these systems climb the kind of pyramid of abstraction and can show that like the fundamental skills that they leverage on games like chess and Go seem to actually get them to multitask generalization and kind of doing strategic reasoning. Um, when it comes to the specific scenarios, like the number of different ways there are to kill people or to kill everyone, I think that action space actually is bigger than it might seem. Uh, not just because you know we fallible primates haven't thought of all the ways that we could kill ourselves or each other, um, but also because there are many. There could be many different steps in any given scenario, right? So you might imagine like an AI first gaining control over some local environment, then using that to deploy a different strategy that gets it kind of bootstraps it to the next level of control, and so on and so forth, until eventually its concentric circles of control encompass the whole world, and then it can act in a more decisive and final way. Um, and that's kind of where the action space, I think, grows like really, really large. It's not that it needs a one-shot kill, like a single nuclear strike or a single virus, uh, though I, th I think you know those are not outrageously impossible. I think they're interesting scenarios. Um, I think it's like when you imagine how it would actually play out, when you look at the, the scene by scene, um, you actually get a whole bunch of different trajectories that could lead plausibly to that outcome. That's kind of how I think about it, at least. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are other scenarios beyond these. These are just some of the kind of simple ones. You can also imagine AI just taking control of society. It runs everything, right? And then it just decides to shut off the water <laughs> or something. So there's, there's a lot of things, uh, and you shouldn't just think of it in concrete ways. So you mentioned this, and, and on this topic of you know, super intelligence, God level intelligence. This often relates to self improvement and FOOM, where some people argue that we are on the precipice of AI very rapidly becoming sort of a God level intelligence. And I think in many X risk kind of people's minds, that's sort of the main thing to worry about is the super intelligent thing that is like way beyond our capabilities. That appears to me to be what people more often are worried about than let's say human level general AI, where you have an AI that is um, sort of similar to us in its level of capabilities. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think it kind of depends. This is sort of where people uh, often get stuck on the definitions piece, which is why I think you were so right to call it out early on. Um, but like, I, to me, there's like, there's a certain level of, of intelligence, let's say a certain intelligence surface, right, where the AI is really good at some things, maybe doesn't have to be so great at other things, uh, where it's like, okay, this intelligence surface is good enough to pull off the, you know, 
pathogen attack or the nuclear weapon attack. You can imagine like an AI that's really, really good at persuasion, like persuading humans and maybe blackmailing them um, would be required in order to pull off like a nuclear Armageddon scenario, because it's not going to be able to just like what, like build or buy nuclear bombs itself on its own. It'll have to convince a lot of humans to, to cut, you know, do something interesting. Um, whereas, you know, for a different risk scenario, uh, like, for example, I think a lot about hedge fund risk, like hedge funds that build very powerful AI systems that are given more and more access and autonomy to the internet, like that ends up for various reasons, I suspect, going through a different path and requiring a different um, capability surface. And so to me, the question is like, at what point are the general advancements that we're making in the capability surface these systems as we grow that capability service more or less uniformly, at what point do we get to the point where that capability surface starts to overlap or reach the capability surface needed to pull off any one of these things. And so that's kind of why to me, like the AGI that leads to human extinction via path one could look completely different from the AGI that leads to path two, which is part of why I'm such a fan to your point of like concretizing at least to some degree, because you can at least start to think about, yeah, what's required to pull off some of these things. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think, we we are both on on this uh, point uh, in agreement. I think in my mind, it seems like some of the leading figures in X Risk are more on the like let's only think about God level AI or we'll have God level AI. But regardless, this may be a good segue to so we talked about the definitions, the uh, scenarios. And and the broad point of this whole discussion, right, is aside from just giving an overview of a topic, is to give two perspectives and sort of lay out ways to think about it to let you be able to think through of like how concerned are you, how big of a deal is it to you? Because if you do think this these arguments are plausible, then you know you should really <laughs> worry about AI experts. It should be like the thing that is one. Yeah, that, that you really are aware of and maybe try to impact in, in making it not happen. So implicit in all of these definitions and these scenarios is there are certain things that have to happen, generally speaking, to be really worried. And that's one of the kind of implicitly that's going to affect how much you worry about X risk is how plausible do you think some of these things are. So one of them obviously is we do get to some level of very intelligent AI beyond what we have today. Generally, probably a lot more intelligent in some ways. Um, it does seem like so far we are on a trajectory towards very intelligent AI, but that's one of the um, assumptions or prerequisites. Implicit in that is some other assumptions of likely we'll need, I think, new compute paradigms to be able to support superintelligence. So currently we're using these you know, clusters of supercomputers and they're already getting saturated with GPT-4. I think, uh, anyway, uh, that's one of the things I think is very important to think about is the hardware progression necessary. And of course, there are some other assumptions of alignment is hard. We can't figure out alignment. And there is this kind of catastrophic um, orthogonality thesis or catastrophic um, reward hacking or specification gaming that can happen where it, it does turn out that 
you know, there are simple objectives and we don't figure out how to restrict things or make it very simple to be like, okay, here's a space of things you might want to pursue and don't pursue anything else. So that's one of the other things that generally, you know, you need to think about probability wise, how likely is it? And if you think there is even a small likelihood, then you should be worried about X risk. Yeah. So like the discussions I usually have on this topic, it, it's interesting with, you know, everybody, we face a point of disagreement with every, with everybody that's, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit different. Um, you know, with some people they'll say like, well, look, I, I, I just don't think that I'll call it AGI. I apologize. Whatever, like the dangerously level, the dangerous threshold of, of intelligence is, I just don't think we're going to build those sorts of systems. I don't think it's physically possible. And, you know, I, I've had, or at least with the current paradigms that we have, I don't think we're going to do that. Um, I had a conversation with Melanie Mitchell, uh, who is a, uh, I think a Stanford researcher now kind of in, in the space. And that was kind of her, uh, her stance on it was like, she thinks that, you know, the only way you get to human level intelligence is by raising your AI in the same way that we raise children. And so she has this thesis around like social development being required to get to something like human intelligence. To me, that sounds like way too specific. I, like, I don't, uh, particularly think that that's credible. I think that uh, that thesis kind of died when we started to see systems even like GPT-3, let alone GPT-4, that show capability at scary things like chemical weapon synthesis and manipulating humans uh, without going through that process. But you know, you may disagree with me, and then you, you know, as a result, you may say, "Hey, like our paradigms are just completely wrong." Um, you could talk about compute as well, and I think that's a separate thing that maybe we can footnote for a sub discussion because I think that's an interesting piece. Um, then, but if you think that we're going to have the AGI is possible, you may disagree that it's possible soon, soon enough that we will not have solved the alignment problem. And, um, anyway, so there are, there are people who think that, that, Hey, it's a long way off, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm not married to the idea that it's going to be like tomorrow. Uh, I think uh, two to three year timelines are not insane. So I, like, I, I tend to think of those as like, you know, 10, 15% ish. I don't know. Um, and I, th I think that, you know, by the time you get out, you know, 10 years, um, my odds go up a lot. I don't know what they go to, but like 50, 60, 70%, something like that. Um, and, and on later. So everybody's got a different set of probabilities. I think a lot of things are reasonable, uh, but the timeline matters too. And then if somebody agrees, so sometimes this happens, they'll agree that, yeah, I think we'll have AGI pretty soon. Uh, but if we do, I don't think it'll pose a risk. And so at that point, you start to argue about whether intelligence is, in some sense, intrinsically dangerous, if it's even slightly misaligned, or whether, whether we will, by default, be able to align these systems. And then the last piece is like, okay, well, maybe we'll have AGI soon, and maybe we won't be able to control it. Maybe it will want to seek power, but it just won't be able to execute on that competently enough. You know, it's going to be, it's just too hard because the, the real world is buggy, it's wet, it's damp, it's dirty. Like it's not as simple as, as the world of software. And so the plans that the AGI puts together uh, in its kind of software bubble will not translate readily in the real world. And it won't be able to adapt, we'll be able to stop it, we'll be able to learn from that and kind of iterate our way to success. Um, I don't know if that's helpful. That's kind of it's sort of the, the way that like, I tend to see these conversations unfold, and I'd be curious about like your take of where in that in that structure you you find the most disagreement, and and where you find kind of the most agreement. Right. Yeah. So we've we've sort of started already getting to it. So the next, let's say, half of this episode will be 
more doing kind of free-form discussion. I think to start with, to get into the discussion, we can just sort of summarize our positions, which have been kind of hinted at, but let's <laughs> lay out more broadly. So my position is, I don't think X-Risk is ridiculous, but I do think it's, let's say, overblown, or, or some people who think it is sort of clearly a thing are maybe making a lot of assumptions that are wrong. I would say basically 0% chance within 10 years uh, of so even- DGI or X-Risk? Of X-Risk, of, okay, of cool. like 5% of humanity dying because of specifically AI. AI is the main factor. I think 10 years, I just don't see it happening. And that's for multiple reasons. One of them is I do think I would assign less than 1% probability to super intelligent AI. That's God level. So to me, there's a lot of arguments in favor of that. I think you, it's even an open question of whether super, super intelligent AI, uh, intelligence is possible physically, right? There's physical laws that dictate kind of generality versus skill, blah, blah, blah. Then if it is possible, you require compute that I think is way beyond what we have today. Uh, and those are two cases. Even if you do get to super intelligence, I think within 10 years, there is that concern or, or thing of like, can it even do it? And I think practically speaking, it won't be able to do it if you try to think through the steps. So 10 years, I'm, I'm not worried at all. When you get to 20 years, 50 years, right, that's getting into the murky future where we just cannot know, yeah. right? Um, so I think there, you know, it's it's kind of silly to say it's impossible. You can definitely define a scenario that has greater than zero probability, right? And if this all winds up going to probabilities of like, how likely do you, do you think super intelligence is? How likely do you think that alignment is hard? All that. So broadly speaking, you know, I don't have exact probability thresholds or whatever, I'm still not too worried about 20 years. And I am in the camp of like 50 years is so far out that we can't even yeah, imagine knows. anything. And I think in terms of thinking about things, being concerned about things, like discussion, it's more productive to think about not X-Risk, but more concrete AI safety concerns of militarization of AI, of surveillance, of auditing, et cetera. You know, and as a byproduct, 50 years down the line, I think that will kind of um, basically be what we want anyway for X-Risk. So broadly, I am in the camp where I don't dismiss it entirely, but I think it's in the near term, not something to be worried about. And in the long term, something that we can't even conceive of trying to address. So we are better equipped to address the current day concerns that deal with alignment and ultimately will play into X-Risk. Actually, I, so I think that that first bit there about you know other other risk classes that we ought not ignore on the basis of this is really important. Um, you know, so maybe one thing to highlight as, as I sketch out my position is, yeah, like I, I definitely would not be a fan of saying focus on existential risk to the exclusion of other things. So in particular, I am I, I join you in being worried about militarization. I join you in being worried about you know weaponization, malicious use, uh, and, and all those scenarios, and even just like kind of more mundane accidents that might happen. You know, self-driving car crashes, adversarial AI, all that stuff, super super important. Um, 
So my, yeah, my uh, view on this is, again, you know, you mentioned percentages. I really like that. Um, maybe this is the kind of like uh, policy wonk in me or the, the person who's had to deal with a lot of policy people in me. But I, I'm actually, so I'm, I'm a fan of like staking out a tent. So I have this tent where I think if you view in the next 10 years, uh, the odds of being like anywhere between 10 and 90% for uh, existential risk from AI, if malicious use doesn't get us first or if something else doesn't get us first, uh, then I think we probably don't have any fundamental disagreements right, for the purpose of actually doing stuff. right? So I think that's what makes this discussion quite interesting is that because our percentages are so different, I can definitely imagine you rejecting suggestions that I would make for policy on the basis of those probabilities. You'd be like, yo, come on, man. Like, you know, if it's I'm sub one percent here, I'm not going to be okay with you know, uh, like strong controls, for example, on uh, cloud compute access, things like that, right? So um, that's I think one kind of framing piece. Uh, yeah. So so at my level, I think first of all, I I suspect that progress in AI is going to accelerate and not decelerate. Um, I think back to you know like 2019, people were talking about essentially the the idea of something like GPT three being impossible. Um, you know, it, it really was like science fiction when it came out. You know, BERT, which was kind of like the closest model that we had that could kind of generate and kind of mumble through a sentence or two. GPT-2 also, you know, kind of belonged to a similar category. And then all of a sudden, we get GPT-3, and then you know, we're just what uh, two years down the line we get GPT-4 and so on, uh, and then frameworks and so on. So I, I think what's happened is not only are we consistently surprised by progress in AI um, and this is something that's been documented. Like AI researchers will make predictions, and they'll they'll be like, "Yeah, for example, I think solving this math problem this is like five years away, and then it gets done within like three months." Uh, this is like a classic example that gets cited. Um, I think that's a factor. I think another factor is scaling. Actually, I suspect is going to get get us further than most people think. Um, I see the decreasing cost of compute as something that's likely to kick in over the next two to three years as alternative strategies come online as well. You know, things like Cerebrus and things like TensTorrent, strategies for like kind of bandwidth between chips communicating on a, on a board or whatever, uh, rat, radically potentially accelerating compute and making it cheaper. Um, I do see compute as kind of like the key resource that drives progress in this space as much as anything. And I think there's just so much low-hanging fruit for improvements in these systems. Um, another side I would make on the compute piece is like the vast majority of processing power in the market today goes to inference, goes to delivering the outputs of these models to customers. I think if you divert anything like a good fraction of that to training, you get a massive lift. Like you could get an order of magnitude lift pretty easily um, from just kind of shifting those resources around. So I think, like for various reasons, I, I think just I'm, I'm more <laughs> bullish, I guess you could say, on AI progress generally over the coming not just two years but also ten and so on, um, and that's part of what plays into my views on timelines, on the um, actual execution of these things, uh, and and, the, and and the limiting case, like physical laws you mentioned do limit how much intelligence you can get out of a system. This is true. You can look at how much um, processing you could cram into, for example, like Planck scale, which physicists often refer to as like the smallest scale that may be physically relevant in the universe. And uh, I mean, the reality is like we're nowhere near approaching that scale, right? Like even with the, the you know, three nanometer, five nanometer processes that are driving semiconductor development these days, we're like very far from the physical limits of cognition. And so I suspect 
that in the same way that we've already seen AI systems become superhuman in narrow applications, right? Like I could see this argument being deployed at chess, people saying like, ah, eh, well, we'll never get a super intelligent chess playing AI because, you know, fundamental limits, humans are already, you know, such and such. Um, so we cross that threshold there with a bunch of other games too. And I just see the, the level of abstraction required to master the games that we're seeing these systems master go up and up and up. And I just see the real world as like an instance of a game that I could totally imagine a sufficiently advanced AI mastering. So trajectory wise and end state wise, I kind of see the pieces lining up. Um, I think there's a separate interesting discussion about the specific like scenarios that lead to extinction and the reasons why alignment might be hard but i'm gonna i'm gonna pause there because i just like yeah, on a whole bunch. yeah yeah so so i mean to be a little more specific what what is your timeline what are your probabilities five years ten years um so yeah like i would say uh two to three years i think it's like uh five to ten percent doesn't sound crazy to me uh and then like ten years um I think, I don't know, anywhere, like 10, 10 years out, anywhere from 10 to 90% feels yeah. reasonable. Massive uncertainty, really right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's a good place to start is with two to three years, right? Because my take is 0%. It's just not going to happen uh, versus yeah, yeah. you and, and other people, other reasonable people think there is a probability, 5, 1, 10. If, if you think it's yeah. 0.1%. Then this is a big deal, right? Right. So in my mind, two, three years, A, I am on the camp that I don't think AGI is impossible. And, and let's say AGI, say like really, really smart uh, AI that is way more capable than anything we've ever seen. I think it is possible. Now, it's worth, I guess, defining this other term we haven't mentioned, which is the scaling hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that we don't need any fundamentally new techniques, given the AI we have today, if we continue to just get more data and more compute, we can possibly reach super intelligence. And that's one of the reasons to be concerned about S-Risk is we're already on this trajectory and it doesn't seem like we're stopping and we are just going to get AGI possibly. So two, three years, uh, I think, one, I, I do assign a very low probability to superintelligence for various reasons. I think we, with respect to, let's say, chess, right? Um, it was, maybe the timeline would be wrong, but at the same time, you know, there was Moore's Law and we could see compute consistently improving exponentially. When we got to Deep Blue, that was fundamentally kind of almost brute force, like they built a supercomputer and, and it worked out. Similarly, in scaling, uh, there is a kind of trend we've seen, like there are power laws, which are given this amount of data, this amount of compute, we see this level of improvement. And the thing with power laws is they are power laws, so you get diminishing returns of magnitude. So when in we the, go to... In the objective function, yeah. In the objective function of, of like minimizing perplexity or whatever. So one, I think two, three years, I, I think super intelligence is very, very, very unlikely. Two, I think if we do get it, it will be limited in its use to, let's say, big actors like Anthropic or OpenAI or government that 
will be much more careful with it, let's say, not just like some hacker in a basement. So I think, you know, and and you can restrict an AI, right? If you are being mindful, you can say, here are your API calls. You can't do like various like random HTTP calls or whatever. Um, so you have that, you, and I think realignment piece in the near term um, if you have just a small set of players like Anthropic or OpenAI, I think the alignment thing is doable. Uh, it's much harder when you get to a you know, broad thing of an AI just goes out on its own or you have a hacker in a basement. But alignment with a small set of, let's say, responsible players that are informed is not that hard. So to me, two, three years... Also, we don't have, you know, even beyond all of that, if there was an AI that wanted to kill everyone, I just don't see it happening, right? Because there's no robots to hack. There's a lot of physical infrastructure to have factories, to be able to manufacture nanotechnology, etc. So even if we had a malicious AI that was given free reign to do whatever, I don't think it would be able to do anything in, in two, three years. Okay, so there's a lot on the table there. I'm just gonna try to peel back a couple layers of the onion, uh, the way I see them, and, and be interesting to see what you think of this. But um, so first of all, uh, in terms of um, the the idea of a small number of actors, and alignment is easy if it's OpenAI, you know, DeepMind, Anthropic, let's say, doing this. Uh, I think one important thing to flag is like open source has consistently been about like a year and a half behind the cutting edge, um, and so. I think whatever Anthropic, OpenAI, and DeepMind can do, you know, like this year, pr plausibly gets open source like within two. And so, you know, if, if it happens in those labs, like they start to worry about, well, when is the open source replication going to come? And part of this is a reflection of the collapsing cost of compute effectively. Um, although processors, as we talked about on the podcast a lot, are getting very expensive, uh, compute overall is uh, both getting cheaper. And is um, uh, and more abundant, I should say, uh, and is um, uh, being leveraged more and more efficiently. So we're seeing algorithmic improvements, compounding compute improvements, compounding data improvements, and so that's part of the reason why I see scaling kind of going very well uh, in the well, very well for capabilities in the in the coming years. Um, I think one thing too that, that's really interesting about the question of like power laws and a, a kind of uh, plateauing returns, if you will, is it is a power law in the in the loss function in the in the optimization objective. So the thing that actually like gives you, in a sense, diminishing returns is this perplexity score or the entropy score that the model gets. In other words, how good it is at doing autocomplete, how many mistakes it makes. Um, it's not super clear though that like how that score maps onto actual capabilities. So the the key question is like how do you take a, a metric like the uh, the power law kind of loss function and map it onto okay this system can deceive humans this system can design effective long term strategies plan over long time horizons just really quick uh, to that point yeah. just for context of a listener when we say loss or we say perplexity that's basically for language models like how, how good are you at out of complete. Right, so you're saying we can predict how good the model will be at autocomplete, but 
what does that mean in respect to actually doing stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a great clarification. And so uh, for that reason, I think like a lens that's maybe uh, more valuable in factoring the risk calculation in is looking not at the loss function, but just at like the actual capabilities, demonstrated capabilities of these models. So we went from a, you know GPT three that was like pretty impressive, uh, but could only write coherent text on the order of a few paragraphs and would then ramble off and you know not that great to GPT four, which. Uh, again, I think is worth flagging. Like, is able to persuade humans to solve captchas for it, as was tested in their kind of internal documentation. Uh, is able to design long-term plans. Is able to help people figure out how to convince other people to do things for it. Is able to do all kinds of things that one might associate with a takeover scenario. The kind of skill set that you would imagine the system requiring and leaning on to to do what it needs to do. And so I think when we look at it through that lens, the story of the last few years has been one of alarming increases in precisely the skill set that would be required to pull off a takeover. Uh, the design of drugs, the, the design in particular of deadly drugs, the development of a kind of autonomy, even through systems like AutoGPT. Basically, you take a system like GPT-4 that has one capability surface, and you just make a tiny kind of infrastructure tweak, and then all of a sudden you unlock this like autonomous behavior. Right? So imagine how many other low-hanging fruits like that exist just trivially in open source that take this model that already can manipulate human beings, can design drugs, and so on, and then give it a much wider action space, not to mention you know, what happens when we start connecting it to APIs, third-party services. Um, one, one key dimension of that too, right, which is maybe more, more niche and kind of less appreciated more widely, is like when you plug a system like GPT-4 into a calculator, for example, you're allowing it to offload an awful lot of the memory it would have to store in its context window to that calculator. So you're effectively increasing its context window length. Um, you're, you're allowing it to kind of outsource computations, if you will, to that thing. So the more systems you plug this into as well, the more you broaden that action space and increase effectively its long-term planning ability. And so uh, when, I, when I look at the, the past three years through the lens of capability, I'm like super alarmed. At that point, I'm like, wow, like it really seems like not diminishing returns at all. It seems like we're just kind of climbing that hill and the the number of X's uh, besides the boxes that have all the skill sets that I imagine would be needed to do something dangerous uh, is, is really increasing fast. And I'm not sure how many more boxes need to be checked before we get something dangerous. Um, I guess that, that would be. Right. Yeah, that's, that's some good points. And I guess to flag it, right, in these discussions, ultimately, a lot of this is just gut feeling. Right, <laughs> we just don't know, and yeah. so some of these things, of for instance, compute, I can respond and, and say it's true that open source has been kind of tracking the GPT four type performance pretty quickly, and now you have to kind of lay out your assumptions, and these assumptions are not based on facts; they're more just like loose, informed guesses. So my assumption would be if we really need to get to you know, worrisome AI, then we would need an order of magnitude more compute at least. And then, uh, yes, we have some improvements with compute, but at the same time, the Moore's law of GPU improvement is, is dying out. So in the like power law of compute improvement along the paradigms that we have today, we can see that we are sort of flattening out. So, and, and regardless still, you know, you, you mentioned the capabilities of GPT-4 
and maybe GPT-5 will be way better at those capabilities. But to me, with that set of capabilities, I still still cannot fathom how there could be a catastrophic, you know, worldwide event from a GPT, you know, with its capability to uh, convince people to plan, blah blah blah. Still, I cannot see a sequence of events that leads to any sort of X risk. Okay, so there's that concreteness piece that maybe maybe we can park just for after we get through the abstract stuff, like how sure. would a GPT-5, but I think, I think it's a great point, just to be clear, like it's just, you made a lot of really good points. Um, the, so the, yeah, the first piece on, on the, the diminishing, like the idea that, okay, we need, you know, maybe 10x more compute power to get to that, you know, existential or, or whatever threshold. Um, I don't, I don't disagree. Like I honestly, I totally agree with you on the gut feeling thing i'm like yeah yeah maybe it, it kind of depends on the architecture and you know what kinds of efficiency improvements we get um but on the moore's law piece i mean I, I think we actually are seeing a continued acceleration in the effectiveness of processors um as as people come up with innovations not at the level of chips or chip fab which is kind of we're approaching the sort of like subatomic limit of how fine your resolution can be in the manufacturing process but rather at the level of like chip design um, so, you know, like next generation chips, like the ones we're seeing being developed by Cerebrus, for example, or TensTorrent, those are like, you know, we're seeing already some of these things handling like GPT-3 style workloads where they train GPT-3 in like an hour. Um, you know, the H100 is another example of a really big leap. Like that's, so, so the H100 alone is 4X better than the A100. So really, we're looking at like one and a half improvements of that order of magnitude to get us to, to that 10x threshold. I don't think that the two years is at all out of the question for something like that. And, and that's where I kind of get like to, okay, yeah, you know, we are 10x plausibly in two to three years. So yeah, you get a little bit of, I don't know why I'm doing the stupid Jay Leno thing. Yeah, I watched a bunch of his, his content recently. Sorry, Jay. Um, but yeah, so that's roughly where, uh, you know, where, where the, the compute story lands. I think there are, there are also a bunch of like weird curveballs, like, where is quantum computing going to land? That's more of a, like a 10 year thing, you know, whatever. But just like you can imagine all, like weird curveball things, optical computing or some shit like that. But um, even, even kind of barring that, I see the compute story playing out maybe more bullishly personally. But um, again, it's like you say, I mean, so much of this has got instinct. How many more uh, H100s are we going to see to the, you know, H, or A100 to H100 jumps are we going to see in the future? Um, my guess is like that's just going to keep coming. One, one last thing I'll add is like the, the factor that I see driving this as much as anything is also economics. So with ChatGPT, I think we hit a critical threshold where uh, for the first time, these AI systems are allowing you to bring in enough money to pay, to close the loop and pay for the next generation of hardware. And, you know, LLMs are already driving much more demand. I think NVIDIA has said, you know, like if it weren't for this LLM demand, we would not be innovating in the way that we are pushing the, the boundaries of these things. So there's kind of a self-licking ice cream cone thing going on that I think accelerates things faster than we've seen before. Um, but to your point, like at a, at a certain point, you know, it, it's just uncertain. And that's kind of where I get to my, uh, my 10%-ish, my J Leno 10%. Yeah. And, uh, Oh, this is just a fun detail that I think is worth mentioning. So for any non-engineer people listening, uh, Moore's Law, by the way, is this pretty well-known idea that for CPUs, for our computers, 
historically, there's been a very consistent trend of exponential improvement where I forget the exact detail, but like the performance doubles every 10 years or something like every, that. Every two, yeah. Every two years, right. Yeah. So the cost goes down and the performance goes up. There's more formal definitions, but generally speaking, right, there's been this trend where you know, in the 80s, you had giant computers that now are as capable as a calculator, that sort of thing. And, and, and Moore's law applied to AI, right, has been like, it's been even steeper. So like, so uh, I was yeah. going to say, there's actually a new thing called Huang's law, <laughs> <laughs> which is saying that uh, the performance of GPUs will more than double every two years. And so, so far, that's definitely been true, right? The past decade has been the story of massive, rapid improvement in compute that has then enabled massive, rapid improvements in AI. And for most of the 2010s, that was narrow AI of object recognition, uh, you know, computer vision, NLP. Then for the last, let's say, five years, that's been more to do with general purpose AI, starting with 2018 BERT, 2019 was GPT-2, 2020 was GPT-3, and so on. So anyway, that's, that's a fun little term to be aware of. And I think a lot of the concern does is informed by the question of, should we be concerned if the current trends just continue? Or, as many people argue, do we need a new type of AI, a new approach to AI with fundamentally different approach to training with GPT-4 to really be worried? And I think, personally, I also think that GPT-4 is awesome and you can do auto GPT and so on, but ultimately, to get to something super intelligent, you need something that can learn online in the real world. You can't just cram everything into the context. You need like ongoing memory eventually, and we just don't have those kinds of architectures that are, let's say, next level beyond just autocomplete. Okay, I want to dive in here and just agree with you very strongly. Um, so uh, totally, I think like, so sorry, let me take a step back. I think that you could make a GPT-20 uh, with an insanely big context window that's so long that like it can hold the context of every conversation that every human on planet Earth would ever have with it. And yeah, like at that point, I would be worried that is a system that is is de facto an agent uh, just because it's able to like use what it's learned from one situation, apply it to another, and it's able to remember what happened through all those situations. It is de facto an agent. I'm really freaked out about that. But GPT-5? No. GPT-6? I don't think so. Except for another thing that, that kind of like freaks me out a little bit is the possibility of like having a breakthrough on context windows that just like makes context, context windows de facto like unlimited length. We've seen some stuff like recurrent transformers play and start to flirt with this idea, um, like long former as well. It's, it's kind of too early to know, but this is yet another vector where I kind of go, well, you know what? Like there's another possible way that we could be surprised by progress. And we have been in the past, uh, that doesn't even rely on compute improvements. But, um, when it comes to the kind of current generation GPT-4, I think where where the risk would come from more so is people like combining GPT-4 with, for example, the um, the kind of like uh, tree based search long term planning abilities of the Alpha series, right? Like uh, or Mu Zero type models, where you're really combining reinforcement learning with the kind of 
GPT-4 as a knowledge base type of setup and co-training them together. This is something that Google is already looking at with their Gemini uh, model that's going to be coming out sometime in the next sometime. And so like it, it's stuff like that where, you know, we, we start to... Um, it, it, like I do think in the long, long term, GPT-20, like the context windows just get so big with raw compute, but I don't think we need to get there. I, I think in the shorter term, it's going to, if there is risk, if it materializes, remember, Jeremy's at 10%, not not 99% on two to three years. That's still a low percentage. But I think it's something we ought to factor in very seriously is like if you just combine together reinforcement learning and like, you know, one of these very souped up models, I could see that going pretty badly. Hmm. Indeed. So yeah, maybe to zoom out and and kind of redraw a little bit the boundaries of what you're thinking. I think 50 years, even though I'm like presenting the extra skeptic side, I do think it's it's pretty plausible to worry about extra risk 50 years from now. Just because, just to draw out one example, I do think you can easily imagine there's like a kid in his. I don't know why I keep saying hacker in a basement, but there's someone with access to AI and they just decide, you know, say, hey, AI, make me the most money you can on the stock market. And then the AI is super smart and it has quantum computing. So it is able to hack, you know, everything. Or there are, you know, a lot of uh, military robots that it can then autonomously control, or there are personal servants that it can hack, or it can make money and then pay people to build a factory to manufacturing not a robot. There's a lot of plausible ways where you can imagine things playing out. Now, I still assign a low probability to that due to some of these questions of technology, of is it inherently possible to be super intelligent? Do we get quantum computing, et cetera? Will it be possible for someone to just say, you know, go and make money, blah, blah, blah. But I think 50 years from now, you know, you could say like 10, I would say like 10% probability with 100% uncertainty. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we are agreed on that point. And I think, Kind of that's a reasonable stance, right? I think I would argue that just completely dismissing X risk is kind of silly in the long term, uh, unless you have some fundamental argument of like it's impossible to achieve super intelligence, which is I would be skeptical. Um, but yeah, I think to me, the question and the kind of discussion point is more in the near term of. Think people like Yudkowsky are like, oh, in the next five years, <laughs> everything will blow up. So whatever. For for what it's worth, like I think the next five years, everything will blow up is like a very credible, very plausible position. Um, but I also disagree with, and, and like for the reasons we discussed, like I'm just, I I look at the the set of capabilities that like you know GPT four has over GPT three and, and three point five and so on, and and just like kind of at a certain point, my temptation is to draw straight lines between two points and say like, okay, if we just project this out, like how many more skills would GPT-4 need before you start to go, eh, See, you know, but that's, that's interesting to me because if you draw a straight line, to me, fundamentally, GPT-3 and GPT-4 aren't that different. Like GPT-4 okay. is better at conversation and being human-like and whatever, right. but it's not fundamentally different so gpt5 will what be better at writing emails and convincing people it has that level of capability okay. but this level of capability that gpt4 has 
if I get right. better, I still don't see any path to okay. risk. That's that's super helpful. So yeah, I think it's like some of the things that, and at a certain point, this gets to like the like you said, the gut instinct. But some of the things that make me think of GPT four as more dangerous um, certainly include persuasion, which GPT three was like a lot worse at. Theory of mind. So it, the people run tests on it to show that like, hey, it actually seems to be modeling people's beliefs, their hidden beliefs, a lot better. In fact, GPT three was kind of useless at that. And a big one for me is also tool use, right? Like we see these these systems, GPT four in particular, just be able to like almost seamlessly use tools with very minor fine tuning, and that is, I think, a really big step uh, in in the kind of increased action space of the models. I think at a certain point, like you know, GPT four, uh, like do you, do you suspect that there is no point, for example, at which the GPT series would like develop the ability to design pathogens. So I have this kind of theory, uh, you know, belief, whatever, gut feeling that there is an inherent trade-off in generality and capability. So AlphaFold can fold proteins. GPT-4 cannot. GPT-4 was trained on protein data or something, right? And so when you take into account memory, when you take into account context windows, when you take into account generality, I think that's that's kind of a question of God-level intelligence, really. is like, can you be capable of modeling physics to the point of creating nanomachines or chemistry? And I assign a very low probability to that because I do think there's an inherent okay. trade-off in generality and capability. Okay, so okay, so I, I actually that's that's really okay. This is so useful. I think that's probably as much as anything. Then the maybe the crux of our our uh, disagreement. Um, I see things like so. So w- one of the pieces of evidence that uh, I think is interesting here is positive transfer. So you know, for people listening who are like, "What the hell is positive transfer?" Um, if you flip back like to I don't know, like a year and a half ago. Uh, Google DeepMind, they put together this model called Gato. And Gato was like trained to do a million different, ta- 600 different tasks, 450 of them. It could do half as well as a human expert. And so it was kind of like considered the world's first sort of truly generalist system. But one of the things that they found with it was it exhibited this trait of what was known then as negative transfer. So if you tried to increase the number of things that you were training it to learn, it would actually like get worse. Like it, it wasn't able to let's say, benefit from what it had learned on the first 600 tasks to help it learn the 601st. It just got overwhelmed, basically, roughly speaking, not to anthropomorphize or whatever, but for, for time purposes. Um, what we've seen since then, and, and like one of the big arguments that was made at the time was like, look, uh, negative transfer, this is something we're never going to get over. Like This is a fundamental trade-off. And what we've seen since in systems like um, the Palm series, in systems like, in fact, GPT-4 uh, shows some of this, is a switch now to positive transfer. So now all of a sudden, it actually becomes easier for these systems to like, learn the next marginal task. And um, I think that, that has to do with another kind of compute threshold, much like the one that brought us from the kind of GPT-2 to GPT-3, where you go from, this system is a glorified text autocomplete, to all of a sudden, whoa, like, where did that come from? The system can translate languages, it can write essays, it can write code, like, where did that come from? Um, I think this is another one of those thresholds of like compute and data where you actually have like the system benefits more than it loses from adding new tasks to the mix. And so you get kind of breadth and depth in the same way that I would argue humans work out like 
in that way, right? If you're a physicist and then you're trying to work on genomics and design a pathogen, you get to leverage a lot of that prior experience to make you much faster at doing that new task. Um, again, I mean, this is like gut instinct at a certain point, uh, but that's part you know, of my, yeah. Yeah, this is interesting because, I mean, that is a very important point of do ultimately, as we get more general, do you get better or worse? So, uh, there is a bit more kind of empirical basis for this, where in the domain of computer vision or more narrow applications, it's been found that some tasks are positive transfer and some negative transfer. It's a mix. Yeah. And so I I think we have seen some positive transfer with you know, kind of things that are broadly related of language and things like that. But I think it's always going to be a mix. And if you go to like protein folding and at the same time you try to do like tax uh, write-ups or like you can easily imagine two tasks that require very different skills. And ultimately there's so much information to encode, so many processes, so much compute that I think it has to be to some extent negative because you're trying to encode everything in your weights you require more knowledge, a lot of knowledge required for protein folding, a lot of like processing capability that is not necessary for, I don't know, like modeling the aerodynamics of an airplane or something on that. Front. Right. Like, yes, there's some physics, but I think that's, it's, it's an important question. And maybe everything is positive transfer, but I think it's ultimately going to be a mix and that inherently limits how super capable you can be at multiple things. Yeah. And okay, humans, so I, humans can't be super capable of many things, but that's because we are lame and we have to learn instead of just well, being trained, right? That, yeah, that's part of it. I, I think like the, uh, the the naive person to me wants to say like, well, yeah, but the, the issue with humans is scale. Like if you just scale this more, and, and I would see the same as like for positive transfer, um, as we've scaled systems more, the positive transfer has emerged in precisely that process. So that's kind of where I, I sort of go like, we've, we've literally seen tasks that showed negative transfer in the past, the very same tasks. And yet with more scale, all of a sudden, boop, positive transfer. And so that's, that's where my intuition around this comes from, is like seeing things that previously were, uh, yeah, exhibited this, this um, uh, phenomenon and now don't. And we're even seeing that across modalities. So for example, like systems, like language models exhibiting positive transfer when then applied to vision problems too. And I would argue that that's because the language model is developing kind of a, a very robust world model that increasingly starts to approximate an understanding of things like physics. And to the extent that it does that, it can then essentially kind of compress most problems into a much more digestible form that it can then chew on and reason about more efficiently. I, th I think that's, at least in my mind, that's where the positive transfer mechanism actually concretely comes from. Yeah, I, it's it's plausible, I think. But I'm. it's one of these things of like, you assign probabilities and that's one that I would go low. But I do feel like going back to this question of like, I think it's, it's maybe one of the crux of our differences is in the five-year timeline, right? I, I say it's impossible. Even if you had a super intelligent AI that was able to run a mock I can, there are some, like the most plausible thing I could think of is going back to your point of persuasion and manipulation, maybe it could try to start World War Three somehow by manipulating right. events and, and making humans kill each other off. 
but still, you know, it's it's like, well, it can send emails, right? And it can like, I don't know, pay someone to do something, but I just don't see it having even even if it is able to try and manipulate people right i don't think it has any like mind hypnosis capabilities and it's just not easy to kick off world war free with like little interventions um so to me i just i don't think we'll have like god level predictive ai and i don't think we'll have AI that's capable of kicking off anything that will kill a lot of people. Right. So, yeah. And I think this, again, boils down to like this question of concreteness and like which specific scenarios do people think are, are likely. See, but to me, it's like you assign a 10% probability in five years. That's crazy big, right? That's like horrifying. I, I agree that it's horrifying in its implications. I don't think it's crazy big as a leap relative to the demonstrated capabilities of a system. No, like I, I'm not saying it is crazy. I'm saying... 10% is so big and, and it's, it's crazy in the sense of like, it's horrifying. Yeah. 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 I, I, well, I totally agree. Like, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not like giving 10% and going like, Hey, it's just 10%. Um, it, it sounds really scary to me. Uh, and, and I, you know, I might put it slightly higher, actually, actually quite a bit higher on the order of like 10 years, uh, sorry, five years. Um, I'm saying 10 for two to three years. Uh, and, and, you know, plausibly, I, I might even go a bit higher than that. Um, but the so so one of the we're thinking about like concrete scenarios and how hard it is to do this. Um, one dimension of the action space is like also the kind of multimodality piece. So like just thinking about persuasion for a minute, you know, there's like sending people, um, you know, crafting phishing emails or like messages or whatever that are really compelling. I'm concerned about that. I think when you combine that with things like. Um, photographs that are generated by the system, video that's generated, audio that's generated by the system, faking calls, like anything that we see malicious actors do today, um, like you know these fake kidnapping recordings that were terrifying that we talked about uh, on our last episode, um, we now can start to imagine the AI system deploying those strategies in service of its objectives. And then others that we haven't thought of, and to me, like that action space is like so vast that when I think about a system, especially one that's been augmented with any kind of long-term planning capability like a Mu Zero, like a, an Alpha Star or whatever, um, that's kind of where I go, okay, you know, you start to put these things together and uh, it's not clear to me that it's going to happen. Like again, 10%, 10 is one out of 10. It doesn't happen most of the time. But I'm like, am I, am I that confident? I'm like, I'm not more than 90% confident that that wouldn't happen. That's kind of like... right. And and to me that's that's the hard part to understand is the one in ten right and uh, you're not alone. Yeah. Many people are like ten percent three years, ten percent five years, and I just and and that's kind of the crux. Maybe is yeah, we can agree fifty years, twenty years, who knows, right? But uh, if it's ten percent in two years, three years, then this is very urgent, and it's like the yeah. most important thing that is happening right now. And I always have a struggle of, and I think many people on the uh, skepticism side also are like, I just don't see it happening and I don't see how it could happen. And yes, I can engage with the arguments of we might get much more powerful AI within two, three years. It might have reward hacking or misspecification. But even then, you know, deep fakes, phishing, 
whatever, all these capabilities. I don't see these capabilities combining to be catastrophically dangerous. Okay. So what about what about uh, concrete scenario time? Would that make sense? Like if we yeah. like looked at yeah, because like, like I want to I, I want to hear ten, three years. What is that one in ten right. event? Yeah, cool. Okay, so now this is where I lean on, or I tap the sign that says, uh, you know, Jeremy is is a fallible primate, and his attempt to to kind of like think of a strategy that a super intelligent system might deploy is obviously not going to like be as good as whatever the real thing would do. So, but here's by the way, if you if you're saying so, probability is like multiplicative with independent events. So you're saying there's a greater than ten percent probability. If in the scenario that it's a super intelligence of a super intelligence being here within three years, I'm saying that uh, two to three years, I think ten percent is like a reasonable. I would even say kind of, I might go. I would understand people saying twenty percent or so. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it really matters too much. But like ten um, percent is a reasonable probability to say that uh, we get wiped out by an AGI. Or, or whatever you want to call it, yeah. Right, and and so there's a sequence of things that have to happen. First, we need a higher than ten percent probability of having a dangerously level intelligence. And okay, I mean, I could see probably right. that's eighty percent in your mind, or something along those lines. I I, I wouldn't say eighty percent. So this is a really good question. So for me, where what what bears the load is I actually think that once you build a system that is super intelligent by whatever definition, um, you the odds that you're going to be able to control that given current techniques are like shockingly low. Like I think mm. that, that that system is, is like kind of radioactive, if you will. And so I would say like 50% would be a low end estimate for the probability that an AGI at any point um, is, is uh, uncontrollable. So then you could say like 20% will get AGI exactly. and then 50% the AGI will then be X risk. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that sounds like one set of numbers that at least makes sense in my head. Yeah, and, and so that's kind of where we start to get into a little bit more concrete, even without a specific scenario, right? Just like yeah. get into the specifics. Right. To me, three years, I would assign like 0.1% probability of like super intelligence. GPT-5, yes, we'll have. But I, 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 I would say that's... That's not at the barrier of capability where it'll be dangerous. So whatever, however you want to define like a dangerous level of intelligence, yeah, you assign something like 10, 20% probability. I assign less than 1% within three years. Right. And, and this is where, I mean, I guess I'd go back to, you know, uh, revisit the old like you know, how much processing power do you think would be required if you, I think you mentioned like 10x lift. I think uh, I think that's reasonable. I, I I don't know, but 10x sounds fine. Um, I think we get to 10x pretty easily. In fact, this would be this would be like a bet I'd be really keen to make is like two to three years from now, um, the the leading models um, of the day I suspect are going to be trained on like well over 10x what we see today. Yeah, um, I, I could see that, uh, but then 10x will be like. I, I could see it maybe, but also 10x is like 10 trillion parameters or whatever. It's exponentials are hard, but uh, yeah. And I think the point here for me is not oh, to sorry, get into flops, like compute rather <laughs> flops, than yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. Uh, the point is not necessarily to get into the concrete positions that we take, but this is more how I like to think about it. And I think discussion a lot of the time misses is 
we can agree on the ingredients of this, on yeah. the prerequisites and the assumptions. And then it's much more productive to just disagree on the basis of those assumptions. So there's like a sequence yes. of assumptions of like, A, we get danger, like super intelligent AI that is capable. B, we, the AI is then somehow not aligned. C, we cannot control that AI. Uh, we cannot prevent it from doing bad things. And to each one of those, and there's more of that. Totally. But those are the three that are kind of primary. You can assign different probabilities at different points in time. To me, each one of those are assigned a very low probability within three years. Right. Okay. So, so that's that's something I'd love to because there's one dimension that we haven't talked about, which is like, assuming you get an AGI, what are the odds that uh, you know that, that we can control it? Basically, like, like is it you know how radioactive is this thing? The, these these weights sitting on your computer. Um, I, like, I'm, yeah, I'm curious what you think about that dimension of it. Like, do you think that's uh, we're overwhelmingly likely to be able to control that system by default, or, uh, or 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 no, or like is there a threshold of intelligence? Right. I think. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. I think a alignment will. We we should be capable of restricting certain categories of action. So, and I the the other thing is currently I think and and this is something we didn't bring up is. So far, we haven't had this objective utility mag mag uh, maximization behavior or, or use of AI, right? So we train something like ChatGPT, we tell it do this. It has no reward function that it's pursuing and maximizing. It has like uh -huh. a semantic goal. And reward hacking, like power seeking, you could argue, you know, is it true or not? I think it's pretty obviously true. You can easily make a case because we know that if you give a number and the entire goal of AI is to maximize that number, then it's going to do whatever it takes. And if it right. requires wiping up humanity, it's going to do that. Sure. Now, that's another thing where I think that's not what we're doing right now. Like We don't have reinforcement learning as the thing that's used to chat GPT, aside from reinforcement learning from human feedback, which requires a lot of manual data collection. So that's another area of like, we don't even have that paradigm. Um, and I think A, because of that, B, because I think within a few years, if you have 10x compute that is still beyond the reach of like individual actors, it's still going to be anthropic or open AI or governments. I, I would assign a low probability to us not being able to control AI, A, because I think alignment might in, in this paradigm would not be that hard, and B, because we have a smaller set of players that you know actually try to control it. Okay. Okay. So that's really helpful. Um, so the smaller set of actors that try to control. I guess we touched on that earlier, but like I, I don't super draw much um, kind of uh, comfort <laughs> from that. I guess like I don't think that you require open source hackers in basements doing bad things to like get really bad outcomes. See, um, I, I wonder about yeah. that because if you have anthropic, or let's say you don't have a malicious actor, right? Yeah. Then there are very easy ways to limit AI. You know, you can say like, you are not able to send emails. You are not able to post to Twitter. Right. So the problem is empirically, that's just not happening, right? Like OpenAI is deliberately trying to increase the action space of their systems and like plugging them into the internet to do whatever they want. 
And there's no way to know really at what threshold we are going to get a dangerously capable system. So essentially, you've got commercial incentives pushing companies to wire up their systems to a greater and greater number of external APIs without having any ways of actually telling when their system is, say, deceptively aligned or has reached a level of capability where it has internal goals that are represented in its structure. And so that like that like i think empirically that that's what worries me i about. agree on that and that's a good point and to that i guess the other part of it is <clears throat> even if you let it send emails or do twitter uh they are monitoring it right they can see what it's doing and i think any x-risk event in general will be like a pretty long process of like you need to build up your armies or to seed your whatever or whatever so then that gets to the point of like if it gets misaligned can we stop it and yeah. if it's a small number of players that are commercially incentivized even for ai not to do crazy stuff then i think even if it like starts doing bad things there will be time enough to see it and curtail it yeah, like to be clear, I think a small number of actors is be is better than a big number of actors by a lot. I'm just saying, like, I don't draw a ton of comfort from just the fact of it being a small number of players because I think a system that is intelligent enough, um, among other things, like we're talking about, you know, the monitoring of the system at the deployment phase. There's like all this testing that goes on before deployment, where it's interacting with researchers from the lab, and I think one of the things with a if we're talking about a super intelligent system, if we kind of live in that world, uh, a system with long-term planning capabilities and a lot of context awareness, like this is a system where you give it a, a, a just a text interface with the external world, uh, with with other people, and it it can potentially find strategies to like compel people to do things, to blackmail them, to show them evidence of whatever, and threaten to do whatever, uh, or just basically design hacks like malware. Um, I think that's a category that I would expect to be pretty risky as a breakout scenario. Is like an AI system. We've already seen that they can outperform human competitive programmers today. Like, what does that look like projected out with long-term planning? Competitive programmers are like lead code, but yeah, no. I and that's yeah, that's yeah, another but, thing of like yes, viruses and hacking is a thing. But then on the other hand, it's easy to jump to this conclusion of like super intelligent AI can just hack anything or something. And yes, I fundamentally, then yeah. it, there's like a drawback of like, no, yeah. if you uh, have good software in place, it's just impossible to hack something, regardless of how yeah. smart you are. And, and I agree with you. Like, this is where um, I suspect what, what would happen is you have a, a de facto dangerous system you can contain to a significant degree. I just like I'm really worried about how effectively that system could outdo its containment measures over time, um, and I don't know if that's two to three years. I don't know if like you know if you require open source for that. But my suspicion is even just having it sort of like boxed in, um, people have actually Yudkowsky is of all people. Not that I'm not not that I'm like <laughs> gonna lean on him for a lot of this stuff, but like he has done experiments where you know he uh, he'll put himself in a box. And he'll tell his interlocutor, the user on the other side, he'll say, your only job is to keep me in this box. And we communicate through this chat interface. And the challenge is just keep him in the goddamn box. And I think his win rate right now is like greater than 50% of breaking out of the box. And, and the issue is that, again, this is a just a fallible human primate uh, with, with today's capabilities who knows less than GPT-4 does as, as a point of general knowledge and who presumably would... I suspect, plausibly at least, be able to 
uh, plan ahead less effectively than uh, a souped up, you know, alpha version of GPT six in you know three years from now. And so um, again, it's like kind of like looking at at the empiricals. This is one of those. I worry about human failure to imagine, uh, failure of imagination, and like how how wild these things can go. When we have examples of of failing at boxing even today, with like you know smart but not super intelligent humans. Yeah, and and by the way, this is an actual term, AI box. Uh, yeah. We didn't define it, but this this idea of like one of these responses. Well, just don't connect it to the internet, right? Keep it limited. And one of the counter responses is well, it can just convince you to let it go. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's like two sides of a coin in a way where you and many people worry about a lack or a failure of imagination and me and many people, uh, let's say, worry about an over-successful imagination yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it is very easy and I think there is a lot of basis in concern about X-Risk and thinking more in a sci-fi way of it's easy yeah. to imagine these narratives yeah. and stories and I do think... In some cases, when you get too far into it, you start being unrealistic in ways that are like clear. And it's not okay. just about failure of imagination. You're just yeah. saying things that don't make sense. So I, I like another point of really strong agreement that I have with you here is in, oh man, I don't know how to call this, like um, AI safety aesthetics, I want to call it. Like, so um, hopefully it'll become a little clearer. It's a little, roughly what you were talking about there, right? So. I think a lot of people in AI safety, and I think Eliezer Yudkowsky in particular, um, like to reason in the limit. So what I mean by that is they, they tend to like look at where we are today and they're like, okay, crank up compute to blazes. And like basically I have this beautiful mathematical curve that just says smartness go up. And so I imagine what it looks like when I take smartness to infinity, like the limiting case all the way and like then you have this super 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 crazy super intelligent hyper intelligent system and like in that scenario yes i think that that like the world blows up almost like immediately because it is and that's just, where you get to like bomb the data centers according to you uh, that's where that's for sure where you get to bomb the data centers i think you get there without needing that but i think right. you definitely get there with the yudkowsky position right. for sure right and um it's it, so so, and you know, sorry. Just to be clear, I have to clear this up because other, otherwise, people will rightly be upset. Um, so he did not say bomb the data centers. He said that that needs to be in the Overton window because we need agreements not to set up systems like yeah, this. He said maybe, but yeah. and, well, <laughs> consider yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and and essentially for him, this is through the lens of like. Um, kind of uh, the, the way that we enforce all international agreements is, yeah, backed by force. Ultimately, like otherwise, it's not it's not worth anything. Mm -hmm. And so, the particular kind of force that he would see as being necessary to back this would be that. Um, but you know, no more than saying, like, uh, I don't know, uh, international agreements over certain kinds of trade ultimately can lead to war if they're not observed. Uh, but but still, I, I I still agree with you. Uh, it, there's a limiting case issue here, and I think. One of the key, this is what Foom does, right? When you talk about Foom, that's immediately like, okay, jump to the limiting case. Imagine time goes to infinity, intelligence goes to infinity, and it's like, holy shit, we can't control this thing. I think that what some AI safety people like Paul Cristiano, who used to head up AI alignment at OpenAI, have done is they've kind of recast the story in a more continuous 
lens. Like, what if we get a more slow takeoff where, you know, these systems, they might try to pull something and then we notice it. We go, ah, trying to take over the world there. You can't do that. <laughs> and then we, we, we roll it back. And then we gradually learn from our mistakes and iterate to success. I hope that's the world we live in. I don't think it's impossible at all that that's the world we live in. I believe Eliezer Yutelsky thinks it's basically impossible that's the world we live in. And that, I think, is one of my more fundamental disagreements with him. Apart from, there's a style thing. He's got a dismissive, kind of jerky vibe. And I think it's it's like sad and ironic because so much of his work has been, he's got essays where he talks about how like, hey, like you can't tell people to believe X unless you have permission from them to put that idea in their head by being nice to them, by being approachable. And then he goes off and, and does whatever he does on Twitter. He calls people idiots. And he does, like, I, I don't know how he reconciles this stuff, but the style we should, I think We is, should probably yeah. mention, because uh, <laughs> we keep referring to him, Yudkowsky is... Yeah. A big figure in this space. He was one of the early people who sort of started the discussions going. He's an eccentric figure in some ways and, and is very much like on the very far fence of X-Risk. Uh, and a lot of people listen to him or, or hear him because he's a prominent figure. Yeah, and, and like to be to be fair, I think he has a lot of valuable insights to share. I think he he shaped a lot of early thinking around like Topics like reward hacking that today are taken for granted as, as being serious things. Um, you know, he had a lot to say about instrumental convergence, arguably, in the early days, and uh, and also inner alignment as a separate risk class. So there, there's a bunch of stuff that he's contributed. Um, but but I think that like yeah, in terms of that limited limit case reasoning that ignores the transient, like all the things we can do in the meantime, policy wise, safety wise, safety research wise, that that could shape the outcomes here. Um, I, I think his pessimism comes from that sort of like go to time is infinite mode. And then, yeah, of course, everything's hopeless. Like, yeah, you've got, I mean, I think we can all agree if, if like I was like smarter than all humanity right now, I could convince you guys to do some like insane shit right now on this podcast just by. You'd be a, you'd be a super villain, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, like Lex, Lex Luthor or something. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I think that's kind of the, the issue there. Um, but there's a separate policy question about what we actually do and whether it is helpful for someone to take the position that, hey, we're fucked. And there's no point, because this is actually Yudkowsky's explicit position at this point. You know, he takes the view, he has a blog post uh, that he wrote, basically, I think it was titled Dying with Dignity. And his premise was basically, we're fucked. All we can do now is put points on the board and and kind of go out with a, you know, at least fight this thing uh, before it takes over and kills us. Apart from it being materially, I think, incorrect as a, as a reflection of what we actually have as options in front of us, I think it's just like not the greatest way to motivate people to do shit. Like telling them this is hopeless. I don't know. That's a whole other thing. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess to do a quick recap, pretty much we are on opposite ends of the concern level, but I think we agree that you can break it down into a set of factors of, you know, will we reach a threshold? Will we be able to align AI? And then will we be able to, even if it's misaligned, to avoid things? And then ultimately, I don't think it's it's wrong to be on the 100% side like Yudkowsky, and it's wrong to be on the 0% side like some people, at least within the 10-year, 20-year threshold. Like, I think objectively... 
it's somewhere between zero and 100%. There is <laughs> we, we a plausibility. Know we know it's somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we just like, we don't know factually any of this. And it's a gut feeling often. And you can make various arguments for what percent you want to assign to this in a five, 10 year spectrum. And ultimately, there's no correct answer. I think personally, I haven't seen very compelling arguments for the. You know, a lot of concern in the three-year, five-year timeline, but um, I think it, it's good to leave it at that sort of uh, summary, and then to show some of the ways that b- the two of us kind of get to our levels of probabilities. Yeah, absolutely. This was a ton of fun. Um, can I can I just like add like a what like another definition to the list by the way just a concept sure. that people can look into yeah i'm really sorry i just like this is it's so central i feel like people would be really upset with me in the ai or a safety world if, if i didn't mention this um but it's just the distinction between like uh, outer and inner alignment is this something like this is something you've heard before or should i uh, go ahead and define it yeah 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 okay so um basically the idea is uh the, these are these are basically arguments for why it would be very difficult to make an AI system behave in the way that we want it to. And aligning AI systems usually is broken down into these two steps of outer alignment and inner alignment. So outer alignment is this problem of coming up with a goal, which if pursued by a super intelligent AI to the maximum extent possible, would not destroy the world. Like basically, it's like the paperclip thing, right? You gave it an innocent goal, hey, make paperclips, and then it goes and turns the whole universe into a giant paperclip factory. So it's like that's not an outer aligned system because make as many paperclips as possible is a fucking stupid goal. Okay, that's outer aligned. Let's say we come up with a goal that, if pursued, would lead to a wonderful world. The problem is that it turns out that we don't actually know how to take that goal and cause it to be internalized by an AI system. That's the problem of inner alignment. And to kind of sketch this out, one one way people explain the story is you look at evolution with humans and how evolution basically trained us to propagate our genes. That's what the pressures have been, at least up to this point, roughly. Um, And so the the outer uh, objective that evolution gave us was like, hey, propagate your genetic material through time. Um, but now human beings have not internalized that objective. Instead, we do things like that are absurdly completely opposed to that outer objective. We use contraceptives. Um, every male who's listening to this podcast is not currently lined up at the nearest sperm bank to like donate sperm. That's hard to explain if we internalize the objective that evolution was trying to hardwire into us, right? It's like free, free reproduction of your genetic material. You don't even have to care for the infant. Like it's just free propagation of genetic material. And so this is used kind of as a, as a, uh, proof point for the existence, an existence proof of this problem where humans basically kind of fuck off and we, we ignore the outer objective that was specified for us. And the way people worry about this manifesting in AI systems, to give like a concrete example, is a language model, for instance, is optimizing for, uh, I don't know, this like cross entropy or, or, or perplexity measure or whatever it's being trained to optimize for. Um, but what does it really care about? Uh, does it care about that? Or ultimately, that measure is stored in a database entry somewhere on a computer or on a server. Um, so does it care about the number that's there? Did, like, could it not, is the best way to make that number go up not to like go into the server and like, uh, you know, may, maybe it's obsessing over 
anyway, the configuration of electrons that that takes the shape of that server entry number or something else. So like there are a lot of goals that are confusable with the goal that we think we're giving the system. Um, the last thing I'll mention, the classic example of this, people uh, play this coin run game where they train an agent to go to like the top right corner of a maze and get a coin. And um, they trained a bunch and gets really, really good at this. But then they just move the coin to a new location. And what they discovered was actually this whole time, the agent never learned the goal, look for the coin. It learned the goal, go to the top right of the maze, because those two goals overlapped during the whole training process. And the argument here is that this, this overlap is happening all the time. Say with language models, there's ambiguity between, is it the number in the, the data register? Is it the electron configuration that specifies the number in the data register? Is it something else along that continuum that the AI system is actually optimizing for? In the same way that humans don't care about our outer objective, the AI, it's, the worry is, will not care about its own. So hmm. outer alignment and inner alignment, kind of two, usually two resolved pieces of the alignment problem. And Andorant, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good to know. Um, so we've been going out for a, a while. <laughs> yeah. I think we covered a lot of useful information. But before we wrap up, I do think, you know, post-discussion, post a lot of this background, you do work on AI safety and policy. So I think it'd be good to hear from you, you know, even if you're a little bit concerned about X risk or not even X risk, just AI risk, AI safety. And that's something we totally agree about, that there's a lot of bad things AI can do even if it's not extinction. So given your policy and safety perspective, what do you think we should be doing today to help of alignment and, and potentially avoid extinction? Well, this is where Jeremy's going to just run onto the other side of the fence and join Andre and say, hey, guess what? Most of the policy measures that deal with uh, alignment risk also deal with malicious use risk, which we're both really worried about. Uh, I think, it, is it fair to say for you in the kind of shorter term as well as the longer term? Yeah. Okay, great. So here we're going to start to agree a whole bunch on stuff. Um, for example, uh, controls over compute at some point are going to be required. Like if if you assume that we can do arbitrary harm with a you know arbitrary number of GPUs, then at some point algorithmic improvements mean that with a smaller and smaller number of GPUs, you can do arbitrary harm. And so at some point we're going to need licenses for training runs. That's just I, just, I don't see the world playing out in a safe way if like you can have basically a digitized nuke <laughs> effectively available to you for whatever, like a hundred bucks or whatever. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of one piece. Um, I think ultimately we're, we plausibly are going to see controls on research that makes algorithmic improvements um, that allow people to do more with less as well. That's possible. Um, I think that uh, more funding for fundamental uh, AI safety research, which yes, will include X risk if Jeremy gets what he wants, but if Andre gets what he wants, it's also going to include controls over these systems, preventing people from jailbreaking them, preventing people from you know, getting these systems to do dangerous shit. Um, so I, I think those controls are good. Know your customer restrictions on cloud service providers, right? It is not going to be tenable for like a big company to just like allow anybody to use their servers to train systems or deploy systems in a world where those systems are arbitrarily powerful. A lot of question marks here around what arbitrarily powerful means. We'll leave that to the policy people that speaks yes to timelines as well. So that's going to play into it too. Um, but I think a lot of controls around the compute end of things is going to be required. 
And then we get to look at the geopolitics of it. Somehow the US and China are going to have to find ways to get along on this issue. You, know, you cannot have a stable situation where both countries are racing to the precipice, so to speak, building more and more powerful, scaled, capable AI systems, weaponizing them against each other. That's not going to go well. So at some point, we need international cooperation. Even countries like China and Russia need to be gotten into the fold as you know their, their domestic capability increases. And then the semiconductor supply chain that feeds into all this, that produces the GPUs that we consume, you know, that's going to have to be tracked and monitored. And it's going to become like almost like the fissile material, I would say, with you know, there's some exceptions to that analogy, some issues with it, but roughly speaking, it's like the uranium supply chain for, for nukes or plutonium. And so um, I think there are a lot of dimensions to this, but broadly speaking, um, yeah, any, anything that hits those, those notes on the head, I think I'd be in favor of, as well as voluntary agreements between the leading labs. Things involving slowdowns, I'd be a fan of to let AI safety catch up. And um, anyway, there's a whole bunch of threads there that uh, obviously just opened, but... <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess that reminds me <clears throat> implicitly why I care a lot about uh, a small number of agents versus a large number of agents. Kind of implicitly, if you have just companies and governments that have these super AI systems, then you can do these regulations of let me audit your system, let me do right. some safety checks, etc. And And that is partially why this would be a big deal. And yeah, I think... It's a nice way to conclude, maybe, to point out that there is a weird level of animosity often in these discussions of like people who totally dismiss and like hate X-Risk type discussion. And there's people who think it's ridiculous to dismiss X-Risk or it's like the thing that you should be thinking about. I think it's good to come... Regardless of if you're a total skeptic or or like ten percent wipeout, we can all agree that there is AI risk. That's uh, you know we already are seeing it as as you said we already seeing phishing we are seeing these scams. There's a lot of documented ways to harm people and a lot of possible ways to harm people and a lot of what you would do for X risk concerns also applies to these concerns, right? I think the, the biggest exception may be something that I would be in favor of at some point, but that you might not be, I'd be curious, is um, uh, I think at some point we need licenses for training runs themselves. Actually, may, maybe you'd get behind this too. So the argument goes something like this, like if we don't know the threshold at which AGI is possible, like you need to require licenses to pre-register training runs to show that they can predict the capabilities their system will have, uh, and then not to train above a certain level of capability. Um, I think this actually might scratch your itch potentially too, because there's always the risk that people will steal these models, that they'll get stolen and then used by, you know, leaked into the open source or whatever, that just building these models at a certain point introduces uh, a level of risk that is potentially significant. But that might be the the last note. Sorry to ruin your. That was a beautiful outro, and and maybe <laughs> maybe <laughs> no, people could just it, listen it's to one that. of these things. We could keep going for five hours. Yeah, yeah, on yeah, this, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So yeah, uh, no, and it, it is yeah. It, it, then you have a lot of these concrete concrete ideas to talk about. Where that one is, you can debate it. You know, I could yeah. see it making sense once you get to the level of a natural security concern. So it's it's good to agree that. AI risk is a big deal. X risk may be a big deal, maybe in the near term, maybe in the slightly longer term. 
regardless, there's a lot of questions we need to address about how we control AI, how we understand it, how we avoid yeah. intentional misuse, accidental misuse. And, you know, the extra question, ultimately, it's it's kind of coming down to a gut feeling. So it's best to not get too bogged down and, and too angry about agreeing on a particular stance and instead kind of agree on things we should do. Yeah. Fuck you, Andre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that is maybe the most fruitful thing to do is find areas where everybody can agree and, and kind of agree to move forward and push those lines ahead and where there needs to be debate, we can have debate and please. And yeah. And, and then like, <laughs> I think forget X risk, like something that I, I find is surprisingly really discussed. And this is the last thing I'll get a soapbox about is, most discussions of X-Rex still, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't see many people just literally campaigning for outlawing lethal autonomous weapons. Like there is an organization called Stop Killer Robots that's been doing this for a very long time. And I think there's just in all this discussion of super intelligence and foom and manipulation, somehow it gets a little bit forgotten that literally just militarization of AI and building up robot armies is maybe one of the main things we should be worried about. So personally, one of the things I I would argue is, you know, if you are concerned about AI risk, maybe go donate to Stop Kill Robots. Yeah, there, actually, there is even in the spirit of finding points of overlap. So the, the Future of Life Institute, which I think you uh, included a reference to them early on, um, they do have this um, uh, this like video series that they put together called Slaughterbots that went slightly viral a, a couple of months back. Um, so there there is overlap in the in the groups that worry about both these things. Um, but there's yeah, there, there, I think there's a, a lot of areas where people could could align a little bit more closely and the ethics of this stuff. Oh my god, what a headache! Uh, time to <laughs> time to go get a drink, Andre. <laughs> yes, I think we've talked about extinction enough. So we'll uh, end it at that. We'll, in the description, I'll include some links to recommended reading if you're interested. These are just things I found that uh, are interesting and kind of expouse on these topics a bit more. I think, Jeremy, maybe you'll add some as well. So, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this discussion slash overview. Uh, if you are a regular listener or even a new listener, let us know if you liked it. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai or comment on YouTube or Substack or anywhere else. Let us know if you'd like more of these types of things. I think we both had a good time. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully, you know, it didn't go on for too long. We'll see. All right. And with that, we're done. Thank you for listening.